0: Welcome to Heart Matters, a show about all aspects of heart health, brought to you in partnership with the Providence Heart Institute and Boston Scientific. The Providence Heart Institute is a leading integrated network of cardiovascular care with a focus on putting our patients at the heart of everything we do. And we are committed to making a positive difference in every life we touch. As part of that commitment, we are bringing the doctors to you.
1: Hi, I'm your host today, Judy Dusick, Executive Director of the Providence Heart Institute. And joining me on this episode is Dr. Harry Pellet, Medical Director of Cardiology and Critical Care with Providence St. Jude in Southern California. On this episode of Heart Matters, we are discussing modern diagnosis methods in cardiology and how those advan- advancements might affect you and the care you receive. Hi, Dr. Pellet. We appreciate you joining us for this important discussion today. I'm personally really excited given that um, diagnostic imaging is really where I started my career. So thank you for joining us. How are you today?
2: Good. Thank you so much. I look forward.
1: Well, fantastic. Well, I think, you know, we're going to have um, really an awesome discussion. But I um, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do at Providence?
2: Uh, sure. I've been here for about uh, 17 years now. I did uh, all of my uh, <clears throat> medical school internal medicine training cardiology back in the 80s. I moved out to California in 89, and um, I've been here ever since. I love cardiology. I do critical care and some other things also. I have uh, five daughters now all in their uh, 20s, so that uh, still keeps me busy along with the uh, other things.
1: Well, that's, uh, that's encouraging because I also have five five children, a, a beautiful blended family. So good to know I'll be kept busy for a really long time. Um, <laughs> so very nice, very nice to meet you. And thank you um, for, for, again, for joining us today. And so today we're here to discuss modern diagnostic methods. Um, basically, the changes in how we diagnose different heart conditions and how that impacts our patients and how, like the ability, how it changes the ability to deliver care, but, and also how effective we deliver that care. So I'm going to start with, you know, kind of a high level, but a little bit of a provocative question of um, starting basic with the things we do differently um, today than let's say 20 to 30 years ago. So what tests do you see or perform that have like really drastically advanced over time?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's really night and day in so many ways. Our ability to diagnose uh, cardiac conditions and treat them has really just evolved tremendously um, in the past 30 years. If I had to sort of go, not necessarily in order, one, I just do uh, ultrasound of the heart. Cardiac ultrasound is sort of our workhouse. We can look at both the structure and function of the heart. We've gotten much better in terms of the ability to see things in much, much more detail than we um, ever did before. Uh, My subspecialty happens to be transesophageal echocardiography, where you get very detailed images by putting the ultrasound probe in the throat and actually look at the heart directly from behind in the esophagus. Really just incredibly beautiful detailed pictures. We get three-dimensional imaging. We just get incredible detail we've never seen before. And what that detailed imaging has enabled us to do is to deliver therapeutic interventions. We can now Replacing aortic valves uh, without open-heart surgery by using a catheter because we can plan what we're seeing uh, beforehand as well as with CAT scanning, which I'll mention. Uh, Mitral valve regurgitation, which traditionally was always required open-heart surgery, can now be um, treated by a clip and people can be uh, in one day and out the um, next day. So that's just one example where the imaging um, has really uh, changed us into um, therapeutics. Another area that's really advanced over the past 15, 20 years is coronary CT angiography, the ability to to directly visualize the uh, coronary arteries. In a lot of um, situations, we can save people from having to go a more invasive angiography test or just not be sure of um, what we're doing. Those are just some of the diagnostic things we've done. I'd mention um, people who have palpitations. Before, everybody got this big, bulky Holter monitor, which was... uh, Contraption about the size of a book. You were hooked up to it for 24 hours. You couldn't take a shower, and now we have uh, wearables—little uh, patches you put on or little devices you can wear, where you really get definitive diagnosis uh, much better. And you know, whenever I think of diagnoses, I always say diagnosis doesn't do you any good unless you're going to do something about it. Right? What am I going to do? Is there a medicine that to make you better? Is there a therapy? um, I can deliver. So as somebody who does a lot of the diagnostics, I look upon diagnostics as really the, really the bedrock of what we do and everybody else, little plumbers who do their part, of course, you know, they look at it in other ways and, um, that's just really been incredible to watch the uh, evolution.
1: Yeah. So you're kind of like a, like a medical Sherlock Holmes, right? Like where, you know, you're, you're investigating and you're, you you have these really cool tools to really get into, um, things that just, you know, we didn't really have before to identify, you know, what the cause of a symptom or a chronic condition is. And so so we've advanced from a really long way, right? So we've yeah. advanced from X-ray technology where it was very grainy, if we're kind of describing this, right, to, to somebody just listening, um, and everybody knows what a traditional X-ray looks like, but it isn't even just the, a lot of the advancement you talked about, it's, it's the medium in which we gather our diagnostics um, in terms of going from radiation, which as we know, sometimes is, it's not great in large amounts of exposure, but have moved to different methods like ultrasound, um, right? And MRI resonance, magnetic resonance, et cetera, um, that really make it also um, more detailed. And as you talked about, like 3D, that's amazing. Um, and so, you know, so talk to me about like a little, talk to us a little bit about the common diagnostic methods. Um, that have really stood the test of time? Like what are those just absolute go-tos that are still valuable when diagnosing patients today? Sure.
2: I'd say ultrasound is still um, very valuable. As I said, we've made you know incremental progress. A lot of the three-dimensional stuff, transesophageal echo is really new, but it's still, as you say, it's portable, it's easy, it's relatively inexpensive, and it doesn't expose people to radiation. That's something that's really stayed for quite a long time. Uh, nuclear medicine has been around for 30, 40, even more years by now, and that's still very important in the diagnosis of uh, coronary artery disease to try to help decide who needs Um, you know, more workup or not. Um, EKGs, you know, EKGs aren't as uh, exciting as they used to be, (laughs) uh, but a lot can still be learned from a um, regular EKG. You know, we don't really think of blood pressure as a uh, test in the same way, but I think just the basics of blood pressure being People being able to take their blood pressure at home, being able to take uh, control of their lives. So a lot of what we do is what's been around for a long time, but it's really refinements to a make them more accurate, less guesswork, and mm-hmm. and when we can give the patients more control of the of the diagnostic experience.
1: Right, right, and and even I mean, there's just some some really uh, phenomenal things that can happen that really drive also utilization of how we capture this information. So being a a still certified, but not practicing nuclear medicine technologist isotopes. Do you remember the years when they like had a shortage because a nuclear reactor had to go down and then they couldn't produce it. And then it was like, Oh wait, well, we can do cardiac echo stress tests and we can do other stuff. Um, So what talk, talk to me a little bit about how the, how you, you know, have the ability to sort of pivot and kind of depend on other diagnostics.
2: Sure. You know, like you know, it's like cures for the common cold, right? You know, there, there, There's more than one answer and different things fit for different people. And I think what's important is when you have the array of technologies, you know, part of the art is knowing what to use in um, what situation. Some are more expensive, some less expensive. Some takes more time. Some take, um, you know, less time than others. So, for instance, um, cardiac MRI can often give you incredibly detailed pictures of the heart. And there's certainly the, certain diseases like um Amyloidosis, um, things like RV dysplasia, which are very rare, can really give you definitive answers when before it was taking a lot of guesswork. On the other hand, that's a test which is very expensive. Um, One has to be able to sit still for 20, 30, 40 seconds, breathe shallow, which makes that a very hard test to um, undergo. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are nuclear scans, let's say again for amyloidosis of pyrophosphate, which is a lot more straightforward. To um, go through when you're looking, you're trying to figure out if does somebody have a blockage in the heart artery. You can look at that directly by doing a CAT scan and trying to look at the arteries. You can do an invasive angiography, which is most definitive, but the most invasive. You can do a stress echo, where you put somebody on a treadmill, where you're getting sort of the convenience uh, and and the rapid time of doing an ultrasound combined with the stress test. So you're combining those. So I think having the ability, as you say, to pivot, you know, the supply chain um, shortages and unpredictability hits all of us in cardiology. There've been shortages of dyes that you can't do the angiograms. There's been shortages of the isotope to do uh, nuclear medicine. Echo machines break down and you uh, cannot get the parts. So the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, plethora of ways of doing things is stuff that, you know, part of, of being a cardiologist or part of being a, uh, heart center is knowing what's available there and being able to respond to uh, changes in the outside environment, uh, keeping the patient um, best in mind.
1: Right. And that's a good point with the patient best in mind, because in some cases, patients may not like to be in closed spaces. So CT or MRI may be hard for them. And luckily, they have sort of these new um, open MRI concepts where they don't have to be confined. So I really do love how diagnostics has has really evolved to kind of meet the patient where they are so we can better diagnose them.
2: And I think and that's the problem sometimes with being a subspecialty. You know, you know, in the modern era a lot of us become very subspecialized and you know some things are complicated enough in the technical details, it's important to have the subspecialty expertise. But at the end of the day, one has to be aware of all the tools in the toolbox and making sure you're doing what's best for the patient, not merely what you're the most comfortable with as the uh, clinician. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And would you also say that you've spoken a little bit about how the efficacy, or let's just say some some diagnostics may provide more clear diagnosis? depending on if you're looking at something anatomical or physiological, or like like you said, you're looking at plumbing or the electrical components of the functions of the heart. I guess, like, what is what, what are some of those ways you kind of decide and, like, how you know? So I, a lot of times i have family members ask me, well, they're making me go do the CT, but it's actually something else. You know, or are they going to, you know, put the dye in me? Um, and it's like you know, so they they kind of don't really know how the decisions are made about how you, um, you know, h- how their diagnosis is is going to come.
2: Sure, that's a great question, sort of an overview. So I apologize in a, in advance if I'm going to cause a little PTSD for people from their biology days. But you know, one of the classic things you learn in biology is there's structure and there's function, yes. and a lot of our tests either look at the structure or look at the function. And each one has um, advantages and disadvantages. Um, And I think when you think broadly of all the different tests we do, right, in general, some really are optimal in terms of being least invasive, least cost, give us the more information. And then the others are more niche, right? Because at the end of the day, we wouldn't do a test which is going to take you more time, more discomfort, unless there was some specific need that was met by, you know, test A rather than test B. If I had to look at this in sort of the broadest way, I would say ultrasound gives us both structure and function. We can see the heart chambers move. We can actually see what the valves look like, but we can also look at the flow. So echo in many ways is giving us structure and flow at the same time. What a lot of modalities of the advances have been is modalities which were traditionally one, adding the second. So let's say the example would be coronary CT angiography. So traditionally, all we could do was just see the arteries. That would only tell us the structure. But what we had a little gap was function. And so what I mean by that, with the coronary CT, sometimes if you're lucky, you come out completely normal, I'm done, great. Or I'm um, seriously abnormal, I need an angiogram. Not great, but at least you have an answer. But sometimes you come up with indeterminate. And what's very frustrating for patients is I came down, I did a hard test, I want an answer. Can't you tell me what happened? It's, you know, 2023, modern diagnostics, machine costs, you know, $2 million, my insurance, you know, I got this copay of this. You can't tell me an answer. Um, so what's happening in coronary CT, as an example, is um, there's something called... Um, the heart flow which when you have a borderline lesion and you're not sure if it's how serious it is through some very advanced computer processing it can give you a very good idea is this something i can leave alone or do i need to go in to fix so that combination of structure and function is something that a lot of our um, modalities um, tend to do Um, nuclear medicine to some extent you have the same thing You can see the walls of the heart, which is sort of the structure. You can see how much the heart is moving, which is the function. And although you don't see the heart arteries directly, by watching what's called the uptake of the radioactive tracer, you're getting an indirect idea of what's um, going on with the heart. So there's still a role, right? If you listen to it, it goes, well, I'd rather see the arteries than get this sort of indirect degree of... um, function and the old days if you reverse the first two letters of nuclear medicine you get unclear medicine, unclear medicine. which is probably not something I should say when my co-host uh, here is a nuclear medicine tech but a lot of times you get tremendous information but it's not perfect right mm-hmm. um, but at the end of the day you're not exposed to dye so for instance if you have any degree of kidney function you're a diabetic the coronary cta requires you to get a type of IV contrast, which can cause damage to the kidneys. Nuclear medicine does not have that problem in the um, slightest. So it's sort of that risk and benefit, sort of that um, structure and function uh, differentiation, the same is true of uh, MRI. There's both structure and function. And a lot of times when you add function to a test, the test will take longer. There may be extra cost. Sometimes it's not As reliable, your reliability may go from, you know, 98% to 85% because that's not the inherent strength of that particular type of um, imaging. But really that structure and function is is often sort of a guide as to the uh, types of tests we're doing. Uh, The other thing I would say is also access and where cost comes in. So let's say a lot of times when people have chest pain, There are a lot more treadmill machines around than coronary CT angiogram machines around. So a lot of times for chest pain, simply putting somebody on a stress test, just a treadmill, a simple EKG can give you some information and say, hey, everything looks really great. I'm done. This looks really bad. I need to have a more invasive angiogram or I need more information. So the fact that some tests are easier, less expensive, more accessible even though they may not give you a definitive diagnosis all the time, is why a lot of times you end up getting more than one test. But there is a logic to that, which can be a little frustrating. But people go, "Well, why don't I just get that second test right away?" Well, that's a simply a matter of uh, practicality,
1: right? And I think you know we have to recognize it's it's a snapshot in time when we're going in. You know, we were suddenly triggered to go to the doctor because something happened. We had a symptom. You know, again, it's an investigation, and sometimes even the information given to your physician may not really trigger them to order something more invasive. Versus, like, let's just start with a simple, you know, diagnostic study. We'll start with this, and um, and then it's a process, right? And I think
2: that is an important thing. You know, you know, when we're when we're ill, we want an answer right away. Um, thankfully, most things are not super acute, although, of course, some things are and do require immediate attention. But it is often a journey. You know, it, it's yeah. a journey with the diagnosis. It's a journey for the patients to understand what's going on, to be able to um, understand the medications, understand what's interventions and sort of just get a feel for their own condition as to how to best manage things.
1: Right. Um, you know, I think one of the things that has evolved um, and you know, because we really become addicted to getting sort of higher resolution, better quality, better data from our diagnostics, and is that now over time we we have enough data to say we can uh, we can do this rather than sort of a reactive approach to diagnosis? Is there a way to be proactive in our approach to diagnosis? And I'm going to use um, a fancy sort of buzzword: artificial intelligence or AI. Um, because one, it, it, it's you get an image or a diagnost- diagnostic diagnosis of an individual patient, but as we know, is that everybody's different. So how do you really sort of, you know, use the data to kind of hone in on maybe even you know, sort of more specific treatments, et cetera, that that may address certain populations. So using AI from these new modern diagnoses that we have to really help identify patients sooner rather than later and in, in part of their journey where it may be, it may be too late. Sure.
2: Very complicated question where a lots, lots of people work out. Let, let me, let me divide that in, into a couple mm-hmm. parts. Before addressing AI, I'll talk about ups, what we call upstream, right? What you want to do is, mm-hmm. is, is, is not become sick. And I think in terms of reducing the risk of one getting sick in the first place there's only so much that any technology is going to do or any imaging or artificial intelligence is going to do at the end of the day the basics of you know exercise weight control making sure the blood pressure is okay if your cholesterol is elevated uh, taking a statin um, you know being e- eating a reasonable diet drinking enough, I think trying to get enough sleep, you know, often easier said Mm -hmm. than done, I think is really the key. You know, I think a lot of times we're expecting magic answers to come in. We're expecting that technology can solve all of our problems, right? It's a technology-human interaction. So I think in terms of preventing disease, what we can all do, you know, right now is just focus on doing those basics, which are all, you know, often easier said than done, you know, getting time into exercise you know, the weight control of the diet, I think is, you know, the single most important thing you can do. Um, When it comes to the analytics, you know, there's a a phrase that a lot of people hear called population health. And the idea of population health is, right, instead of just taking care of individuals, let's make sure we're doing the most possible good for the most people and taking this data and say, let's predict where the problem is going to happen. If we see trends, let's um intervene so let's say as an example if we know that a poorer population we're seeing obesity we're seeing higher rates of coronary artery disease that's the sort of place where we say hey you know what can we intervene and saying let's put some reasonable diet options out there right by having a supermarket by having the fresh food rather mm-hmm. than say and understanding that well the only thing these people have access to is canned food so instead of blaming the victim let's try to come up with you know, structural solutions to um, structural problems. So I think the concept of what we call population analytics and looking, are there hotspots? And rather than just saying, hey, let's treat the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Let's see what we can do if you're seeing advanced disease. So for instance, what's well known, if you look in poorer areas, you'll see cancers at later stages, you'll see heart attacks at later stages. So what can we do to increase access to patient populations who simply don't have this, right? You know, even if there's going to be more profit by doing a coronary CTA or something a little fancier, right? right? Using this data and say, hey, we know these people are suffering. We know these people aren't getting the care they need. What can we do about that? So I think that's a very important part of, you know, population management. In terms of artificial intelligence, people use the term in an incredibly broad way. At the end of the day, artificial intelligence is a complex algorithm, mm-hmm. um, and you know it's great if you're playing Jeopardy, right? You know it'll be if you're playing Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And the question is, what is the role in healthcare today? And there are clearly significant roles in healthcare. You know, as Judy as you said, there is so much data out there, a human mind can simply not hold. It. just simply can't hold it. We're we're just not able to process it. Right. Right. Um, And even though we have electronic health records, we have unparalleled access we had for to look at a patient and get the data. There's just so much data. You don't know what to do with it. So a lot of what AI can do is just sort of help prioritize for us and just say, Hey, here's what's most important. This person is at most risk to um, have something happening. What's happening in cardiology a little behind some of the other areas is using AI as sort of a second pair of eyes to make sure we're not missing anything, right? We have all these great Mm -hmm. diagnostic images, um, but we're all humans, we can all make mistakes. So for instance, in radiology, there's artificial intelligence, that's sort of a second check to look at your breast mammogram, make sure you didn't miss anything. We're using artificial intelligence to um, diagnose stroke earlier so it's still relatively early in its development in cardiology there's some technical areas uh, which i won't bore the audience with which makes it a little harder um, but i think there will be more and more artificial intelligence which can accomplish really two things one is the second set of eyes to make sure we're not making mistakes and then i think some of the modalities which are labor dependent let's say ultrasound which requires a lot of time from reading the cardiologist right if we had ai that can say you know what we want to be able to do more echoes, right? We want to make sure that, okay, even if it's not a perfect reading, let's make sure we're not missing significant disease out there so we can make this more accessible. So I think there's going to be a role of artificial intelligence to bring the cost down, right? There's a labor shortage of professionals in all aspects of healthcare. So I think working with AI to help us is going to be um, a very important part of the job. Uh, The only thing people always have to be careful with A.I. is that A.I. is a guide to the truth and it's not the absolute truth. You still require a human intervention. And the problem with A.I., sometimes it's a bit of a black box. It doesn't really tell you how you got the answer. So sometimes you just need to look at it and um, do a sanity check. Um, Mm. You know, as you all know, as an organization of providence, we've certainly been doing a lot of work in the A.I. space. I'm actually on a committee. Where we're trying to bring this in, in intelligently and in an organized way. So I think it is uh, very exciting and it is something mm. we will be um, increasingly um, using.
1: Yeah. Do you feel, do you feel like, um, like disease is that much more complex these days, or we just know it's that much more complex because of how advanced we've become uh, with our diagnostics?
2: I think things have become more complicated because we've become better diagnostics. So I'll use cancer example, then maybe I'll switch to heart. Um, you know, In the old days, the expression used to be, was, was were you a lumper or a splitter? Did you look at one disease and say, hey, these are all variations of the same thing? Or did you split them into different categories and say each one is a different and each one requires a different treatment? As we've become more sophisticated, so let's let's talk about genetic testing. So genetic testing is certainly not as used as commonly in cardiology as it is in oncology. Mm -hmm. But as we've become a lot more sophisticated in genetic testing and other technologies, amyloid used to be one disease. Now we find that it's four or five different diseases, and each one requires a different disease. We would see people with an enlarged aorta as an example. So, and there's something called Marfan syndrome, which puts you at risk for having aortic dissection and having a um, catastrophic rupture of the aorta, which is the main pipe coming out of the heart. So it used to be there's like Marfan's and one other disease. So it was pretty, you know, easy to genetic testing. We sort of knew what to tell people. Now all of a sudden there are 15 diseases that will cause enlargement of the aorta sort of look like the same. So now you need to spend more time trying to figure this out. Um, if we look at atrial fibrillation as, as an example, we're, we're discovering more atrial fibrillation than we used to because we have wearable monitors. They're much less bulky than a Holter monitor. So we're finding more atrial fibrillation. So now we have more people to deal with. Now we have ablation. We have new technology that can treat this. So now we sort of have to say, hey, are you the type of patient where this treatment will work or will it not work? So that leads to bit the subspecialization. But we do need more diagnostic testing because, you know, we've talked about how diagnosis can help contribute to therapy. But it's also true right. the other side. As therapies become more advanced, we as the diagnostic side try to have to say, hey, can I give you a better idea as to who's the patient who's most likely to get benefit from this technology and minimize the risk? Right. And, I mean,
1: So a question, a follow-up question is just, what are, so what are, what are some of the new, the issues with, with the new technologies, the new advancements, if science backs these new implementations and um, insurance and, and cost to patients, like, um, you know, hopefully we're aligning right. Sort of the, the, the technology with the access, but also the affordability Um, because I think if, now it isn't so much that you're getting diagnostics because you know you went to the doctor because um, you had symptoms or you have history and they ordered these tests. To your point about the, the wearables is that now now it's like a bi-directional thing. They're coming to you saying, "Hey, doc, I've got this uh, thing telling me I've got I'm having afib. Um, but um, these can kind of cause some challenges from a, from a flow standpoint in terms of us being able to meet that demand um, both from a, an investment standpoint to invest in this technology. Um, like I was saying, and, or just, do you find like the insurance is covering some of this technology or does this fall a lot on our patients?
2: Oh, uh,
1: again, That's a loaded question. I know. I'm it's, sorry. It's,
2: it's <laughs> a good company question. Well, look, first of all, you talk about a lot of issues with the healthcare system, right? At the end of the day, the question is, right, we have limited funds at, at you know, for, for healthcare, right? And the problem is everybody wants everything at the same time, right? We all want to have access to care whenever I want. I want access to all the latest technologies whenever I want. Um, And I also want my insurance bills to keep going down. I want to reduce my taxes, right? And those all don't go together, you know, that given we all deal with the system as best we can. I, I think the problem with some of the technologies is they're sometimes not in alignment with what the people who are making the technology want and what's necessarily in the patient's best interest, right? We live in a capitalistic society. At the same time, we also have a safety net, right? It's a little uh, mm-hmm. complicated how we do things here. So innovators are obviously entitled to try to get the highest return on the investment they can and to charge as much as they can. They want the insurance companies to pay for it, even if the value of the technology is not quite proven. And then you sort of get into the conundrum, right, where the insurance company says, well, I don't want to waste money on this. And you have patients saying, yeah, but I want access to this, but we don't really have proof of the value. And then you get into almost the philosophical question. Well, how much proof do I need? How much benefit um, do I need to have? And where you see that problem sometimes is you'll see new technologies. Let's say to use artificial intelligence as an example, there is some artificial intelligence approved to help you um read ultrasounds. But just because the FDA has approved as device that it can do the job is not the same as a medical society saying, hey, I think this is ready enough for prime time, which is not the same as the insurance company saying, I am willing to pay for this. And we think that your payment is, you know, is appropriate. So you can certainly get lags between the time and technology is available and it's accessible because of the, um, cost issue. Right. And, um, you know, we as a society don't really have the answers to that. And that I think at the end of the day, often just becomes a, um, you know, sort of a case by case basis. And you sort of mention about, you know, that bi-directional now we're patients, you know, are coming to, um, clinicians more and more in time with their questions right mm-hmm. so it, it's very tough as both a patient and a physician right because your inbox right can be flooded by you know these questions people coming in with all this material mm-hmm. and in some places like even cleveland clinic has talked about trying to charge patients right for, for conversations where um you know patients saying you know dude i'm trying to save you from coming in i'm trying to be efficient about this and clinicians are saying they're overloaded so i think a lot of this wearable technology as more information comes in right i got my fit i got my fitbit watches telling me i have atrial fibrillation what do i do right so at the end of the day another problem with a lot of some of the i'll call i'll call it the lower level wearable technology is that it's often not accurate a lot of it is noise and not accurate you get a lot of false alarms but at the end of the day The patients are being told I might have a problem. Right. Clinicians have to go sort through that. So Mm -hmm. one of the unintended consequences of technology is you may get some noise which distracts you from getting, you know, to the good stuff at the same Mm -hmm. time. Certainly wearables have been a tremendous advantage. You know, as I I, I mentioned before, you know, when you have irregular heartbeats, you know, the problem with traditional Holter monitors, you only put it on for 24 hours. You don't have any symptoms that day. You give it back to your doctor's office. And the next day you have your symptoms and you don't yeah. know what's going on. Um, you know, there's great technology. You know, there's, there's Core Alive. You just put something on your phone and you can record your EKG, whatever you want. There's a uh, Zeo patch. You wear it for two weeks. I'm familiar with both mm-hmm. of these on the consumer end. Um, mm-hmm. For you know my family members who are having some irregular heartbeats. And I can tell you, it's just fantastic. Yeah. Um, having those things, but how we as a society try to say, Hey, what are the priorities? What are we going to do? Right. You know, fortunately, the zeal patch, everybody is something everybody loves and are wonderful and paid for and has uh, good access to um, as the market gets flooded, trying to decide which one of these is enough benefit to, to go with uh, becomes hard.
1: Right. Right. And, it, and it's hard. It's a it's a hard sort of, um, I guess, return on investment for the technology. Um, a lot of technology has, you know, promises of reducing readmissions, uh, reducing length of stay, um, especially in our chronic uh, care population, our chronic management population, like patients with AFib or heart failure, um, where it's, uh, you know, we, we've diagnosed it. We've I think we've gotten really good at that, but it's also just aligning then sort of the long term, uh, I guess, supply and demand of being able to take care of that population and hopefully in the right setting. Right, not not so much that they're um, coming in, uh, needing to come into an acute care setting, but more on the on the outpatient side.
2: I think telehealth really comes into that, um, Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of the technology, just simply being able to take blood pressure at home or heart rate at home. Yes. um, You know, we've really you know leveraged the telehealth from um, you know from COVID to the benefit of our patients, and I think you did mention you know for a lot of chronic diseases. Um, You know, it may not get the the glitter of Mm -hmm. some of the newer technologies, but I think it's something that's really, you know, improved the quality of life for um, a lot of people and keeping them out of the hospital. So I think those, you know, remote technologies where people can gather the data at home and not have to come into the doctor's office has really been a a win-win for everybody.
1: Right, right. Um, so, I, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the advancements um, and sort of where, where we were and where we came from um, and to where we are today and some, you know, really innovative sort of um, approaches to sort of overlapping and triangulating uh, diagnosis data to meet the patient, you know, uh, where they are to de- devise the best treatment for them. Um, so, with all that said, I know, and I know it sounds like you're you're really excited. I think you know this is the best thing. These are the tools you use to take care of patients. Um, what are you most excited about with these new advancements, and what do you see as as uh, hopeful uh, with technology you see coming? Sure. Well,
2: I have to say, personally, it's a small niche, but what truly excites me is transesophageal echocardiography. Um, you know, the quality of the images that we see today is stuff we just uh, dreamed of. Um, you know, at our particular hospital, we put in what's called the uh, mitra which I, you know, touched base on before. If you had a leaky mitral valve before, the only uh, answer was surgery. Um, you know, now, as I say, you get what looks like sort of an over, like a miniature clothespin and it pulls your leaflets together and to me it is so exciting because you can just see a level of detail and and three-dimensional in time that you never saw before and you see really sick people uh who come in and go out the next day and feel much better so i have Mm -hmm. to say that's a very tiny niche but if you're asking what you know what what's passionate about uh, just seeing this level of detail and just working with the whole team, because when when I'm in there as a cardiologist, I'm there with the cardiovascular anesthesiologist. I'm there with the surgeon. I'm there with the techs. And we're making adjustments of like literally, like literally half a millimeter. You're taking this little clip and you're moving it to the side. You're bending it. You're turning it clockwise a little bit. And just being able to see that, it's sort of like, um, I don't know whether you call it like a video game or like one mm-hmm. of those uh, futuristic uh, science fiction movie so that i have to tell you I, I just find you know very exciting um you know i think on, on the work they work on the technology i think coronary cta has made a lot of our bread and butter work of people coming in with chest pain um mm-hmm. much easier than it used to be i think people who have irregular heartbeats um the zeo the patch and the alive core are making things much more straightforward a lot of the stuff used to be multiple visits come in i'm not really sure I'm gonna put you on a drug because this is what I think you have. I don't really know what you have. Um, and in many ways, what's sort of fun is you know, part of the art of medicine is trying to do the best you have when you don't have the data. Right. Although the art may be enjoyable, it's not good for the patients, right? At the end of the day, I want to have the answer for it. I don't want to be guessing as to what's going on. So I, I think in general, just seeing the technology reducing the amount of guessing we're getting giving people the, the right answers in a more timely manner, in a, in a more efficient manner, that we're really serving the patients and taking um, care of them is really the art of this. And again, I think like everything else, technology can be abused, right? I mean, you can do far too many tests. You need, <clears throat> you need to make the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. You can be certain enough to do something, but say, I'm gonna do three more tests and just you know waste people's time and go in circles. So like anything else, um, you know, the technology is amazing. And at the end of the day, I think this is where, you know, reasonably informed patients, you know, come in partnering with physicians, right? I don't think, you know, patients have to, you know, do an extensive Google search on on every single test they do. But I think having an overview of what's going on there and just being able to say, hey, do I really need A, B, C, and D, Or, or, you know, I heard about, you know, E, is this something that would work for me? Is where you're having, you know, a a good partnership. And I think that's something that we as clinicians enjoy.
1: Right, right. So um so the the modern diagnostic techniques that we have, it have have really come a long way. We've um been able to get more accuracy in our diagnosis, more timeliness in our diagnosis. It's helped, it's helped patients become more informed, people, the you know, to become more informed um to different degrees, uh, you know, in terms of even just being aware, which I think is a a huge accomplishment um if we're all really accountable to knowing our numbers um you know i think the you know fitbit has really just helped people you know be again a little more self-conscious um to your point earlier about you know the the really kind of fundamental things we can do is prevent disease which i love that you said that um uh, but when we do need to diagnose it we have um all this amazing technology um all this amazing skill that physicians have just had to evolve really and grow uh with to um Come up with you know sort of the care plans for their patients and evolving those, which I think is phenomenal, right? We, is is the ability to kind of adapt to the to to what you're seeing as far as um, you know from a diagnosis standpoint, but to evolve it over time, and that I think that's been fantastic. And then you touched on um, sort of the intra procedural planning that happens with diagnostic tools that now have not just become diagnostics, but they're guiding now um, placement uh, to you know reduce complications but to also just get the the most um sort of uh, you know the best outcome for that procedure which i think on the back end does reduce the cost of care you know for doing it right the first time that's that's always a good thing
2: <laughs> and and that's the key it's really getting it right the first time and i think yeah. that's something we can really do much more now with a much higher degree of certainty, which to me is, um, it's, it's just exciting to see, you know, it's yes. just yes. exciting to take the guesswork to really be um, coming up with the right answers in a much more timely uh, manner. And we're really, you know, doing what we can, right? So hopefully at the end of the day, it's all about the patients. And, um, and again, I think it's like everything else. It's so easy to get involved in the excitement of technology and forget about the patients. And I think, you know, and that's a problem we generally have in medicine. And I think at the end of the day, just making sure as we get excited about the technology, making sure we get, we stay focused and as excited about the patient and making sure we're excited about making sure the patient is informed, making sure that the um, patient is better. Not that we've just had a technical success, but we've had a success with the patient.
1: I agree. And I think that is a, a remarkable wrap up. And again, Dr. Pella, I just want to thank you again for joining us today and really sharing what sounds like your passion um, in 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 just in medicine and in our in the diagnostic world um, and taking care of patients. So, really appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you. Well,
2: thank you
0: thank you for joining us today on this important topic on heart matters we look forward to continuing the important conversation on heart health and wellness with more experts from providence in future episodes make sure you listen to all of our shows on dash radio under future of health radio or your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media we can be found on twitter and facebook at providence and on instagram under providence health systems to learn more about our missions, programs, and services, go to providence.org. And for more information on Boston Scientific, visit bostonscientific.com. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your health care provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you. Thank you.